Hello, this is the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast, and I'm your host, Jill Weber. Well, welcome everybody. Jill Weber here. I'm here with two gentlemen today. I've got Steve Sylvester. Steve is a member of the Order of the Mustard Seed, and he's the rector of St. Nick's Church in Nottingham. Uh, That church has a particular ministry to young people, to refugees and asylum seekers. He served all of his ordained ministry in and around Nottingham. And in 2015, he founded Nottingham City Prayer, which brings churches across the city together to pray for God's power to be released and the city to be blessed. And then we've got with us also his friend, Michael Mitten. Michael Mitten is an ordained Anglican minister and canon of Darby Cathedral. He's seen a range of ministries in his career, including being a parish priest, a director of Anglican Renewal Ministries, and was one of the founders of the community of Aden and Hilda. In recent years, he works as a freelance writer, speaker, and spiritual director, and he co-hosts pilgrimages to Celtic sites in the UK and in Ireland. And so we're going to have a conversation today. Well, actually, the two of you are going to have a conversation today about the Order of the Mustard Seed and, more importantly, Celtic Christianity. And so, Steve, I'm just going to hand it over to you. And you just can you just take us on a journey with Michael? Sure. Thank you, Jill. Uh, well, Michael, we've been friends for a little while now. And um, I joined the Order of the Mustard Seed last autumn and went through a year of preparation ahead of that. And your book, Restoring the Woven Cord, was part of our recommended reading. And I thought a good part, uh, place for us to start would be just to ask you um, why you wrote the book. Uh, it, I know it goes back a, a little while now, but uh, you may want to set it in its historic setting and, 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 and tell us why you wrote the book. Okay. Hi, Steve. And um, thanks to you, Jill, very much for having me on this podcast. It's good to be here. Um, Yeah, Steve, I was working for an organization called Anglican Renewal Ministries in the early 1990s. And um, uh, my my task with the organization I was with was to try and encourage what we used to call at the time appropriate expressions of charismatic renewal in the Church of England. A lot hangs on that word, appropriate. Um, but uh, we were uh, trying to service and encourage those who were experiencing the renewal and also commend the renewal to the church of which I was a part, the Anglican Church. Um, now, I was looking very much for inspiration, uh, particularly from history, actually, as to whether there had been expressions of charismatic life before, and ones that I suppose that I found particularly attractive. And I came across, uh, in the course of one week, actually, several people referred to me to Celtic Christianity. And I will confess at this stage, I only knew the word as attached to a Scottish football team. <laughs> so the whole concept was completely new to me. Um, but that led me into exploring, in particular, the work of the Venerable Bede uh, and his ecclesiastical history of the English people. And I grew very excited, particularly by the stories I was reading, because um, the kind of Christian life and witness and mission that was presented in these stories was so close to what I was hoping to see in my own church mm. and in my and across the churches, indeed. Um, and it, it was one of integration, uh, integrating different kinds of spirituality and ecclesiology and approaches to, to, to mission and ministry. And so the idea came to me of different chords, um, which is why I called it Restoring the Woven Cord. You can't technically weave a cord, but I'm a poet, 
So mm-hmm. I'm not into that kind of accuracy. Um, and uh, I was just so intrigued by the what, what for me was a very holistic presentation of Christian ministry and mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so those stories are amazing, aren't they? And uh, mm. I love the way in which in your book you uh, you take a theme and then you uh, illustrate it through the story of one of the one of the saints. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should probably say that um, uh, the Celts uh, probably aren't one people. Uh, there's a lot of kind of romanticism around the Celts, wasn't there? And, and latterly, uh, uh, there's a, a sense that. Uh, uh, there's been a kind of demythologizing of that. Yeah, Simon sure. Jenkins recently written a book called uh, A Skeptical History of the Celts. But he says that it is accurate to talk about Celtic Christianity coming largely out of out of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, just just who who are the big figures uh, in that, Michael? Yeah, we're talking about a kind of post-Roman world. Uh, obviously, Britain was included in the Roman Empire for a time. Mm. And we're talking about uh, Ireland never was included in the Roman Empire. But we're talking about kind of the times post the collapse of the Roman Empire, when civilization changed dramatically. And so we use Celtic as a kind of very sort of broad shorthand to try and describe the, the, the culture of the time. Britain and Ireland were a collection of different groups of people, really. Um, and uh, and it, it is important to say that those of us who have an enthusiasm for Celtic Christianity are looking at stories from a kind of early fifth century onwards, and it is perfectly possible to to over romanticise them, mm-hmm. um, and to uh, you know beef up the stories to suit our own particular enthusiasms. And we all are trying. I think those of us who are serious about this do try and be as accurate as we can to the history and the stories as we have them. Some of which we believe a strong history for, for some of the stories, others are purely speculative. Mm. Uh, and so we try and work with both really, mm. and try and glean what truth we can as relevant for us today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've uh, recently uh, walked the coast to coast and uh, mm. we, we, as we're coming to the end of it, uh, looking over Whitby where there was the big synod of Whitby in 664 yeah. and that, that was a, a, a big kind of um, crossroads wasn't it in the history of the English church um, indeed yeah because what, what we're getting in this in this particular area in by the time you get to the 7th century Christian Celtic Christianity to use the term has been strong in Ireland it's influencing Britain but of course we actually meet therefore something of a conflict because in Europe there's a Rome-based Christianity that was for a time very closely associated with the Roman Empire after the conversion of Constantine. And so therefore the way that the Europeans were doing their Christianity was significantly different uh, to how the Irish expressed it and how they came to express it. There was a particular problem that of different datings of Easter, which of course we still have in the church today between East and West, Mm. But uh, for, for good reasons, really, there was a sense of which there was a feeling for Christian unity's sake that there should be some sort of conformity right across the, the Christian world. And so, therefore, one had to give way to the other. And uh, in, in a sense, Celt- the Celtic Christianity at the time was less powerful, less organized, less wealthy, mm. uh, less influential. And so it did give way um, to the very powerful institutional uh, more Latin European Christianity. 
Yeah. Uh, it'd be wrong to say one was worse than the other. I have a preference for the Celtic way, and I'm sorry that some of the really strong features of Christian life were lost, I think, in the days following Whitby. But, you know, there, were, there, was, there was good on all sides, so it'd be wrong to make too much of it, I think, personally. Yeah, I wonder what you think about um, the way in which those terms have been used um, over the last maybe 30 years, just to, in terms of thinking about mission. So, uh, you know, uh, I think people like Robert Warren, maybe John Finney as well in the UK, uh, have used the term to indicate different styles of, of church and styles of mission. So a Roman uh, mm. church would be kind of a bit more kind of, yeah, you, you you draw up a grid, you know, and 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 um, and try and do your mission that way. Whereas uh, Celtic, a Celtic expression, a bit more fluid. Thinking about people groups and taking the gospel to people groups. Uh, do you think that's useful? I, I do. I, I do think it was a strong difference. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Patrick of Ireland uh, was one of the earliest of the so-called Celtic Christians, um, and he goes to Ireland, which and arguably the first. Um, Christian to go beyond the Roman world uh, intentionally with mission in mind. There may have been others, but that is, he's the first recorded person to do that. And so when he gets to Ireland, he does find a non-Roman civilization, if you like. Yeah. And he decides rather than importing with him the whole paraphernalia of the Roman Empire church way of doing things, he decides to be much more flexible, more charismatic, if you like, more intuitive mm. to the spirit, mm. deciding what might be right in the work here. And one of the features, I think, that you notice in him and in his successors is, if you like, a respect for the indigenous cultures. So he actually picks up what he discerns to be good in some of the cultures and very much works against what he feels to be wrong and dark in them. Mm. Now, that probably is different uh, you know, when we have a look at our own history of mission across the world, where we've been profoundly disrespectful of indigenous cultures and the way we've done mission, broadly speaking, uh, some wonderful exceptions to that, but I'm speaking very generally. And I think I like to think that had we followed the Celtic way uh, in throughout our history, we'd have been much more respectful of indigenous culture. And that would have quite significantly, I think, affected the way we might have done some of our mission in the world. Yeah, and, and just thinking today about, you know, our society today, there are, uh, as it were, tribes, aren't there, uh, with, within within society? We're not monochrome. And, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and mm. I, I guess for me also just thinking about, um, so, you know, the role of a bishop uh, in, in, monast in <clears throat> um, Celtic Christianity was very different to uh, the role of a bishop in Roman Christianity uh, and, yep. and the abbot uh, that mm. uh, had had much more prominence uh, and and um, I wonder whether that's a kind of putting the some of the other gifts um, like the more, more prophetic <coughs> gifts to the fore um, rather than those kind of teaching pastoral gifts which tend to often to dominate churches. Yeah, it is interesting. Patrick um, is very, very familiar with the um, Roman hierarchy structure of doing church, and he's made a bishop before he goes back to Ireland, because the uh, brief story of Patrick is, of course, he was taken as a boy, as a slave to Ireland. Mm. He has terrible six years suffering as a slave there, as a teenager in early 20s, 
but manages to escape, comes back to Britain where he's living, and then gets a call to go back to the very place that he's found to be so terrible for him. But <clears throat> nonetheless, he goes there. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he goes, however, with the um, confidence of the church, and he goes as a bishop. Mm. Now, in the sort of European Christianity, um, and in Britain up to that point, um, bishops are seen very much as kind of having territory, you know, they're working like the Roman diocesan system, <clears throat> it's copying that more or less. Um, Patrick does appoint, as far as we know, one other bishop in Ireland, um, but he's not really, that, doesn't seem that keen on bishops, he, he never really uses his own bishop status uh, in the work that he does. He's far more impressed by the fact that humans organize themselves into local communities, and therefore he picks up inspiration from what he sees happening in Egypt, because there's a strong trade link between Ireland and Egypt at the time, and Britain. And so he's impressed more by the kind of more charismatic communities that's happening in the deserts of Egypt than he is what he sees in the more institutional structures of the church in Europe. And so he really, he sort of, if you like, soft pedals his Episcopal status and looks much more to <clears throat> life in the community. And as you say, abbots did have authority or abbesses in the community. And quite often bishops would be actually members of that community, so if you like, um, under the authority of the abbot. Mm. Um, so it was a more of a flat structure, really that we get, and more more kind of human, more for me, more human, less authoritarian. Uh, not to say some of those early Celtic people like Columba, who came from royal family, I think did throw their weight around a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they, they did like to use some of their personal authority as well. Mm. Yeah, well, we, we thought it would be quite helpful uh, to, thrift, to reflect on Celtic Christianity in relation to uh, the... Um, the rule of life for the order of the mustard seed. And um, so I, I know I'm a, probably a bit more familiar with this than you. So it, maybe if I could just sort of uh, take us through that, you could perhaps reflect on, on how Celtic Christianity can speak into that rule. So it's in three parts. And the first part is being true to Christ, being true to Christ through prayer and creativity. Um, and um, uh, how, how do those things uh, feature in Celtic Christianity and, and, and what can we learn from Celtic Christians uh, to deepen our vow to be true to Christ through, through those ways? Okay. Um, well, first, true to Christ would have been so true of, of the early Celtic Christians that I read about. They adored Christ. They wanted to be heroes for him. They wanted to, they, they were passionate about Christ's kingdom. They were profoundly Trinitarian as well, incidentally. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, it just features in their devotional language and it has its implications for how they do mission and ministry. It has implications for prayer. And St. Paul urges us to pray with all kinds of praying. And um, what I, one of the first things I noticed about the early Celtic Christians was just the range of styles of prayer that was kind of evident in the Celtic communities. So you had the more formal sorts on a Lindisfarne, for example, you had monastic offices going off several times a day. This would have been reasonably formal by our reckoning, I guess. But then you get Cuthbert, uh, you know, saying, let's storm heaven with our prayers. Mm -hmm. I think he was a good Pentecostal, if you like, in that regard. <laughs> um, the hermits were given to, you know, quietitude, and therefore there was a kind of mysticism 
represented in the spirituality. Uh, and so, you know, you, whatever kind of praying you, suits you, I think you can find it there. But what I love is the fact that so many different kinds of praying were honoured and respected and used in the early Celtic communities. Mm. Yeah, and, and with a, a kind of a sense of spiritual battle, wasn't there, as, as well, which they'd taken from the Desert Fathers into their approach to prayer. Think of Cuthbert standing in the, in the sea off Lindisfarne um, praying. Uh, um, that, that, that was quite a yeah. powerful feature, wasn't it? There's, there's quite a strong reference to spiritual warfare. And, you know, uh, coming from a spirituality, well, I, I have several really running in me, but in the, some charismatic parts of the parts of the charismatic world, you know, spiritual warfare has been strong. For me, it can be done in a rather over-dramatised way. Sorry to be if that's critical, but that's my experience. Again, what appealed to me in what the, what I, the stories I read about the early Celtic church was it seemed to be a very natural and non-hysterical expression mm. of both deliverance ministry and spiritual warfare praying. Mm. It was real to them. Evil was real. Cuthbert decides to go and pray on his island. He's copying the example of Jesus who went into the desert for 40 days to pray and intercede and seek his father in heaven. And uh, Cuthbert does the same on, first of all, on Cadizal, as it's called, off, off Lindisfarne, then on the Farne Islands. He has to, he says, has to clear the place of demons, some of which even try to throw him headlong down the cliff. Mm. We're talking about an intense sense of warfare here. And my reading of this, Steve, is that they felt that, in a way, much of the land had been contaminated uh, there's a, a reference to earlier crimes, probably, I suspect, things like human sacrifice. Yes. I think they were very sensitive to blood being spilt on the land. And therefore, they felt the Christian church was the best place through the blood of Christ to bring healing to places and to people. Mm. And they were very confident in that ministry. And they somehow managed to do it in a way that wasn't in the least bit offensive, but mm. was very effective. Mm. Mm. Yes, and and you know that that commitment to prayer uh, uh, produced tremendous spiritual power, didn't it? In in many of the saints uh, uh, who you know went into very remote areas uh, and and took the gospel, but but were greatly revered because of their spiritual authority. Yes, they were. They were definitely respected because of that. Because before them, there had been the druids. Mm. And uh, and I think some people, some of the early Christian leaders, perhaps did model themselves on the kind of role of the Druid, but uh, but using a very different power. And the power of Christ, which was loving and gentle, uh, was very different to the powers delivered through Druids and others, who all the time were trying to appease angry gods. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the Christian evangelists coming along saying, we don't have to appease an angry god. All that has happened on the cross. You know, there's been this wonderful sacrifice of God himself on the cross. And therefore, we are flowing with the love of Christ. And, you know, you do see love and power going closely together. Mm. I love the image. There's a statue on Lindisfarne of Adam. And we see him with a holding high the banner, sorry, the, the, the torch of the gospel. Yeah. It's really strong. He's very confident in carrying the the torch of the gospel. At the same time, you've got a pastoral staff which he's hugging to his heart. And for me, that really is a wonderful picture of, as I see it, particularly pictured in Aidan, who's one of my favourite saints of that time, uh, of uh, a kind of powerful, very effective, 
missional ministry, including use of the miracles and deliverance and so on, and yet so extraordinarily loving and respectful of the people. Mm. Yes. So just for listeners, it might be just helpful to know. So if you wanted to to read a bit more about someone like Aidan, where would you go to? Well, first of all, I honestly do recommend getting hold of Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Now, it's only a few stories of Aidan, but there are a few very telling stories of Aidan. You could also go, I, I think Ray Simpson has written, or he, I know he's written a book on Aidan. Uh, one or two others, I think, have as well. So there's plenty around if you were to Google that. Um, bear in mind, some will be fanciful. and uh, There's no, no, no shortage of legends around some of these. And all the time, you have to really ask the Holy Spirit to give you good discernment to work out what is true in this and what maybe is fabrication. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's think a little bit about creativity then. Obviously, when we think of... Um, uh, the, uh, the Celtic Christianity, we, we think of uh, the monasteries, uh, Lindisfarne, Iona and so on, and the beautiful uh, manuscripts that were produced. That was a, a kind of expression of, of creativity. Uh, mm. where, where, where do we see creativity as part of the, of the spirituality um, as you look back? At- yeah, well, I mean, there's one, perhaps one story to illustrate this, which is a much-loved story by anybody who has some affection for Celtic Christianity. Go to the northeast. Hilda is in Whitby, who over, uh, oversaw the Council of Whitby that you referred to earlier, Stephen, 664. She had many people in her community. It was a popular community to be part of. And an older man, a man older in years, we're told, probably in his 60s or so, decides to join the community, one piece of community life he really dreads is the evening entertainment section sessions. <laughs> so what they used to do, and I suspect this was common in the pre-Christian Celtic communities, was after supper, what do you do with yourself before you go to bed? Well, you gather around the campfire, uh, you sing songs, you tell tales, you tell stories, you, you entertain each other. And uh, Catman is the guy who feels he's, he couldn't entertain anybody to save his life. Um, but the, there is a habit of the lyre, the musical instrument is passed around. And as it gets near to him, he says, uh, and he always used to make excuses, apparently, on the one this particular night as it got near dangerously close to him. He says, oh, hark, I hear the cows are restless in the stable. I must go and attend to them. So he goes out to the stable and he spends the rest of the night there. And the cows, of course, are perfectly quiet, but anyway, he goes there. But during the night, he has what initially for him is a nightmare because an angel comes to him and says, Cadman, stand up for the Lord Almighty would have you sing him a song of the creation of all things. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine anything worse if you feel you are most definitely not a poet or a writer? Mm. However, in the dream, Cadman opens his mouth and he starts off, praise we now the fashioner of heaven's fabric, the majesty of his might and his mind's wisdom. And he finds words flowing out of his mouth and he is greatly astonished. In the morning, he wakes up, he remembers it word for word, goes to Hilda and says, uh, I've been given a poem. She, when she manages to pick herself up, because it's well known, Cadman does not have creative gifts, so, so he has told others. He now discovers he has the most wonderful bardic gift. He becomes a community bard and writes songs of all the major Bible stories. Uh, and when he, so it is said, so Bede tells us, when he finishes the one on Revelation, then he drops his, his quill and he dies. Mm. 
And it's a story which fascinates theologians and psychiatrists alike, this one actually, <laughs> because it's about latent gifts within us mm. that simply need releasing. It is often dreams which do this for us. Mm. So that's a very typical story for me because it's about the affirmation and the encouragement of creative gifting, in this particular case, through poetry and, and writing. But as you rightly say, Steve, the Book of Curls, Lindisfarne Gospels, are the, some of the most beautiful works that we have. Uh, and they are glorious. The, the high crosses, very evident in Ireland, some, many of them still there, on Iona, just outside the Abbey there. These probably would have been painted, uh, beautiful works of art. And also, uh, clearly what was happening, the Holy Spirit was just so alive in these communities. He was animating even mechanical inventions. Mm -hmm. And some people may be interested to see in sorry, 2016, the historian Dan Snow produced a couple of documentaries on TV entitled How the Celts Saved Britain. Uh, Dan is not a Christian, but he's actually very respectful of the Christians he has researched at this particular era. Uh, and um, he discovers that um, on one particular, he's taken by a, a historian to one particular site in Ireland where we see the first example of uh, uh, tidal power being used for, for a mill and wow. uh, you know it's it's hydroelectric it's inventive it's imaginative you get the impression this creative life was just bubbling up in these communities mm. and they were given the confidence to experiment yeah yeah that's amazing um, and, and and obviously you know the history of monasticism is that often there were kind of technological developments, uh, farming developments and mm. so on, yeah. uh, as, and they became centres of excellence, which mm. uh, could then help all the surrounding area. Yeah, yeah I, I guess this might be a, a point for us just to reflect a little bit on the Celtic uh, emphasis on scripture. Um, and that it was a deeply meditative approach to scripture, wasn't it? Um, which, which is which then gave birth to all the illustrations in it, uh, in the manuscripts. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that, about the role of scripture in Celtic Christianity? Yes. Well, the quality of artwork around the scriptures in the books that we have are a sure testament to the respect they had for them. But bear in mind, the majority of people couldn't read. Uh, and certainly couldn't read, you know, couldn't understand Latin. Um, but those who, um, so, so the, the way to get into scripture was for most people learning it by heart. Now, most monks would have learned at least the Psalms and the New Testament by heart. Many of them learned the whole Bible by heart. Mm. Someone like me, that is just an astonishing thought <laughs> who finds it hard to remember the one verse. But if you are learning something by heart, you have to work with it. You know, you have to, it is a glorious, meditative way of getting it into your system. So you have something like Patrick in his confession constantly um, coming up with scriptures because he's learned them by heart. So yeah. they're, they're just at the forefront of their mind always. So in the, again, in Bede's Ecclesiastical History, very often there are references uh, to, to scriptures because they would have been in his mind as well. He, he, was, he was made of similar stuff, even though it's a century or two later than the stories he's writing about. So I think what we get, gain from, what we learn, again, from the evidence we have, is a very profound love for, devotion to, and respect for scripture. Yeah, 
Yeah, a few years ago, a friend and I walked uh, the St Cuthbert's Way uh, from Melrose to Lindisfarne, uh, mm. and we we wanted to treat it as a bit of a kind of pilgrimage, and so we 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 did include kind of scripture meditation on the road, uh, but then we, we just became aware that you know we're walking the the footsteps of those monks who could probably just start a psalm and everyone would just join in because they'd all know the psalms off by heart. Yeah, uh, yeah it must have been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It must have been very impressive. So let, let's move on then to the kind of the second part of the of the vow for the order of the Mister Seed, which is about being kind to others, being kind to others through justice and hospitality. Do we see justice as part of Celtic Christianity? Well, I do, uh, Steve. I think. I mean, again, I, I often go back to Patrick because he's. Uh, I love the way we have his own documentation through a letter he wrote on his own confession. Um, but let's just think about pa Patrick's been. He was taken as a, a boy, probably around about the age of fifteen, sixteen, as a slave. Mm. Um, and at the time, the, slavery was a very much part of the economy of both Britain and Ireland. I say Britain, which was, of course, a collection of different tribes and kingdoms and so on. But it, slavery was really the backbone of the economy. Basically, people from Britain went over to Ireland and grabbed men and women as slaves mm. and vice versa. So it was very common and it was risky living on the east coast of Ireland or the west coast of Britain. So uh, Patrick gets taken and he clearly is appalled by the injustice of slavery from his own experience. So we don't know quite how he achieved this, but we do know that by the end of his time in Ireland, uh, when he dies as an, an older man, slavery is more or less eradicated from Ireland. But not only that, is, uh, and his letter to Karotikos, which is the one other uh, bit of literature we have from him, uh, is angry against a British king, Karotikos, for taking people as slaves. And he's furious about it. You can tell how deeply it is in him. And this therefore influences, it gets, gets into the DNA of Celtic Christianity of the time. So for Aidan, for example, when he gets on uh, Lindisfarne, we find him raising funds to free slaves. Uh, and Chad and Sed, who are quite well-known saints, especially down here in the Midlands where I am, uh, they uh, were freed slaves, and a lot of Aidan's community would be made up of freed slaves. So they were working to eradicate slavery, and this was seen as part of the Christian gospel to free people from that. It's sad that at some point in history, slavery came back into the kind of coinage of Christian thinking again and seemed to accept it. It took Wilberforce mm. to eradicate it yet again. Mm. So that's one piece. The other, just more general, is again a story of Aidan, for example, although he knew the king well, and he was brought down to Lindisfarne by King Oswald to evangelize the English people, he utterly refused to go on horseback. Yes. Um, and this tells you something about the fact that he wanted to be among the people and not mm. above them, because mm. a, a horse was a, was a sign of status, really. Mm. And I think he would have loved you know, Jesus' words, I am among you as one who serves, not as the Gentiles who lord it over you. Seems to be very important to Aidan and his team and others, not to be the kind of uh, Christian who lords it over others, but actually is among people. And therefore, just that would therefore mean he would be very familiar with the kinds of things in society that were harmful for people, uh, and they would have worked to, to free them from those. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And and as you referred to earlier about the, the whole thing about cleansing the land as well, I guess that that's cleansing from certain practices as uh, where where 
there would have been injustice or oppression as well. Yeah, they clearly took it seriously. So, um, you know, Said was asked to build a monastery at Lastingham, um, and uh, but, and he decides to go and he seeks out the most inhospitable place, not necessarily geographically, but spiritually. Mm. Uh, and Bede records this for us. So therefore, there was clearly an intention to say, we are redeeming the land all the time. He eventually finds a place uh, which has been, to use Bede's words, despoiled by earlier crimes. And he spends Lent fasting and praying. And by the end of it, it's deemed to be consecrated through prayer and fasting. Yeah. And therefore, it's from being a despoiled place, it becomes a holy place. Yeah. Um, and so they, they've clearly had this view of land that it could be very much spoiled by human crimes. Yeah, I, I guess that's quite a good link into thinking about hospitality. Uh, you said it was an inhospitable place. Um, mm. And uh, I guess one of the things that we're learning, uh, particularly as we think about Jesus sending the apostles on mission, is that hospitality is very much two-way. Um, mm. uh, it's not just about us welcoming in, but it's also about us being a recipients of hospitality and looking for people of peace and so on. Um, mm. uh, uh, so do you want to just talk a little bit about that? I, I guess there's, you've got kind of the monastic communities which offer hospitality, but there's also a sense of going on mission and receiving hospitality in different areas. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that if you are devoted to the idea of community, and a hospitable community, you must actually quite like your fellow humans. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that there must have been something about them where they actually wanted to be together. Mm. Um, and I think in the see, Augustine of Hippo, um, who was um, you know not far off contemporary with with Patrick, uh, had developed this very grim and negative view of humanity. Yeah. And basically, humans were worthless until they'd met Christ and he started to redeem them. Now, you know, Augustine's complex, or theology is complex and wonderful, and he was truly a great theologian and leader of the church. But I do think a lot of damage was done by his extremely negative view of humanity. So if you were just wandering around, the first thing you thought met if you met a non-Christian was they're foul, they're a mass of sin, to use Augustine's own words, they, they, you know, they're not worth anything until they're redeemed. I, I kept the impression it was very different, actually, in the Celtic approach. And there was a sense of actually wanting to respect human nature more, whilst at the same time acknowledging the, the realities of sin and evil and so on. So therefore, I think you know, if you actually have a more positive view of humanity, you're probably going to be more hospitable. You're not reluctantly, reluctantly rubbing shoulders with this dirty non-Christian. You're saying, come in, you're made in the image of Christ. There's something in you that we and, and in me we have in common. And you feel, you know, the impression you get, and so I am working more from impression here than hard evidence, so I'll leave it to other experts to provide that. But certainly just the huge numbers of these Christian, Christian communities were clearly hospitable places for people to come and find their faith through them. Mm. And, of course, in these communities, you had places for education, places for healing, hospitals, places for, you know, for um, worship and so on. So hospitality is something I think is, for me, I haven't seen uh, explicitly expressed, but it was just obviously very much there 
And I think for me at the heart of it was this more, rather more positive view of humanity than you get in other parts of the Christian world at the time. Yeah, and it was an, essentially a, a kind of a communal worldview, wasn't it? Uh, thinking in terms of community rather than individuals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you did have the hermits, but they were always connected with a community. Yeah. But it was a community that was constantly sending people out as well. So it wasn't an introverted community um, because they were restless communities because people were so often going out on mission, either short-term or forever mission. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about our, our, the final uh, part of the vow, which is taking the gospel to the nations through mission and learning. I mean, it, you can't talk about Celtic Christianity without talking about mission, can you? I, I love the stories of the saints who, you know, get into a little uh, coracle uh, off the Irish coast and, and just uh, set out to sea and see where God takes them and, and that's going to be where they take the gospel to yeah. um, amazing sense of being blown by the wind of the spirit literally to yeah. uh, to place of mission yes i mean that, you're absolutely right there's a wonderful story wouldn't that be terrifying I mean, you, <laughs> you steal those coracles i mean you know what courage they had i mean some of those would never have survived mm. and some of those might have gone to well gone to hostile places but yeah it was just deep deep in them to take the gospel to far off, to, to, well, to near and to far off places. And so there's what I call a divine restlessness in them. There were just loads of them going off, and these little communities are planted all over Britain, Ireland, and into many parts of Europe as well. So somewhere they got the idea that Christian life was about sharing the gospel. And I think it's because they loved it so much. They just loved Christ. They loved being with him. They loved the good news he brought. And the people they were amongst, somehow they were presenting Christianity in a way where it didn't feel an imposition, but it felt life-giving. Mm. So I think people didn't feel got at. It seems that people felt they had genuinely good news to bring and they wanted to know about it. Mm. Patrick, again, I, I talk a lot about him, but it's fascinating that he um, felt a call. You know, he, when he was back in Britain after being enslaved and he was preparing to become a priest, uh, to be ordained, he got this call. It was a dream one night where the, an Irish voice spoke to him and it said, young man, come back and walk amongst us. And he called it the voice of the Irish. And he was, it's very similar to Paul's Macedonian yeah, dream number. Very, very similar to that. Mm. And uh, we get a good example of somebody being called out of their home location to go to a far off place and take the gospel. Now, a lot of that is not happening. Some people even argue that St. Paul and his team were perhaps the last to do that, interestingly, that mission from then onwards was just happening very locally. Mm. Uh, but Paul is very much devoted to being open to the Holy Spirit, to going where he takes him. Patrick catches this, and it seems that really catches on. Mm. And so this kind of very charismatic, intuitive, the Spirit is calling me off, I go, I've uh, got nothing to lose. And in a way, if you're living a simple life, and many of them lived in poverty, you haven't got much to lose. <laughs> you just right. go off. Uh, life was very simple at one level, but it was also very hard. Mm. Um, so this desire to serve Christ, um, to go off to places which were untouched by the gospel and to just share it joyfully, you know, was one of the reasons why the church grew so fast at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talk about simplicity, but there was also learning, wasn't there, um, associated with, with, with the Celtic communities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I uh, was exploring um, 
the order of the mustard seed. This was a quite an interesting aspect of you know what it means to uh, to take the gospel to the nations um, because uh, it's a, it's about being a lifelong learner as a disciple, but there's also a, a sense of kind of um, that 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 God's wisdom permeating everything as uh, i guess mm. and, and being willing to receive um from others as in that way uh, so just 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 as we kind of bring this to a, 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 a an end just mm. just could you say a little bit about learning as as part of the the monastic yeah um, life and celtic christian okay i think it's, it's very clear that many of these monasteries there was a kind of sort of school if you like there were really good libraries there were some men and women with excellent brains who really thought through their theology carefully, shared it with others. For me, though, probably the most learning happened on, on foot. Uh, it was, you know, it was very much similar. They, they observed the way Jesus taught his disciples. And so people like Aidan, Cuthbert, Hilda, and others would be going out and about with others, just demonstrating how to do kingdom of God stuff. Mm. and teaching as they went. Uh, and there are quite a few stories, again, if you read Bede's Ecclesiastical History and, and the Life of Cuthbert. Cuthbert's going out always with people, demonstrating things, you know, teaching about God. Often there are miracles, and he explains what's happening. Um, so I think for me, probably learning happened on the hoof, mm. probably more than in the classroom, to be honest. Mm. Uh, and it was about, what, you know, watching, observing, learning, and indeed from creation as well, but just seeing God at work and then finding understanding of how that was and then how you could do it. Mm. Well, thank you, Michael. I know that's that's really just kind of skating over the surface of this mm. rich heritage that we have yes. in, the, in, the, in the Celtic Church. But I think for me, some of the things that really stand out, which uh, I think I'm, um, I, I would want to take hold of it in my own walk with Christ is this whole thing about uh, the freedom of the spirit about about uh, responding to the move of the spirit uh, mm. uh, and about uh, I, I guess being courageous uh, the, I think that the sense mm. of courage that that uh, runs all the way through Celtic Christianity is, is, is very strong so so thank you uh, so Jill uh, there we go we've had a little chat we've had a little chat it was wonderful <laughs> so helpful and and just just in case our listeners didn't catch it so Michael you've written the book of woven cord um, and and so we use that in our preparation for our OMS folks but those of you who are interested in the order of the mustard seed and sort of where we get a little bit of some of our um, sensibilities from, make sure you get a hold of Michael's book and, and have a read and we'll help you on your journey of exploration towards coming to the order. Um, Michael, it would be really wonderful if you could pray for us and pray for all of our listeners. Would that be all right? Yep. So may all you who listen know this day a filling of God's Holy Spirit to teach you all things good and wholesome, to fill you with a sense of the presence of your Lord Jesus Christ, to lead you in his ways, and to empower you to take the gospel good news of the love of God wherever you go. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast. For more information about the order, you can find us at orderofthemustardseed.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. May God grant us grace as we follow his invitations to be true and to be kind and to go. Go.